0: Hello and welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about the stories behind great sports writing. My name's Neil White. My name's Martin Gregg. So in season one, Martin spoke to Grant Wall about a piece that he'd done for Sports Illustrated on FC Barcelona. Martin, how did that conversation go?
1: It went very well. I'm, I'm a big fan of Grant Wall's writing. I've been reading him for many years. And I remember um, this piece that he wrote in 2012, at the peak of the Guardiola Barca years, uh, it was called The World's Team, which I thought was a great headline and I thought it would be really interesting to get it, kind of get the story behind um, that piece because Grant spent a week in, in Barcelona and spoke to um, so many people around the club. After that recording, I just asked Grant what he was working on and he told me his latest project was called Masters of Modern Soccer. It was a book that was due out in the US on May the 1st. He told me about the premise of the book, which is he um, profiled someone in every position um, in a football club so on the field from goalkeeper through to striker and then director of football and manager so I thought oh, that's quite interesting um, we ended the call didn't really think too much about it it was later on that night it came back to me and I thought that that's granted used a word he said that he'd profiled each of these personalities in, in the different positions and I don't know if there's a kind of disconnect because in the UK, in UK sports writing, if you say you profile somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean you have direct access to them. You can write from a detached perspective. Um, But because Grant's access is is usually so extraordinary, I kind of revisited it the next day and and I looked up his Twitter feed and about two months previously, he had tweeted, um, he'd taken a picture of the first page of the Vincent Company chapter and the first three paragraphs was basically Grant in a video theatre at Manchester City's training ground, talking to Vincent Kompany about footage that was showing showing on the screen. At that point, I thought, wait a minute, this guy has got access to all these personalities. Um, right through from Manuel Neuer and goals, Vincent Kompany defender, Chabi Alonso, defensive midfielder, Christian Pulisic, attacking midfielder, Chicharito up front, uh, Roberto Martinez is the manager, and Michael Zorc, uh, Borussia Dortmund, director of football. So... Once I realised that this profiling of these guys equated to incredible access, immediately emailed Grant and said, put me in touch with your publisher, I want to read this manuscript.
0: All right, so part of what we do when we have our back page hats on is look for interesting sports books that have been published overseas and see if we can bring them to a UK readership. So that's, that's the job that we started to do with this book. I remember um, sort of texting you, messaging you back and forward as we both progressed through the manuscript, getting increasingly excited um, because Grant had evidently, without shouting this from each page of the book, he'd evidently spent several days with each one of these elite athletes, coaches, technical director. Um, He'd he'd spent loads of time with them. He was at the stadium. He, He was spending time, in some cases, at their house. And in almost every case, he was reviewing match footage with them and dissecting that. So uh, we were really we were really excited by the project. So the book was written for a North American um, market, for sure. So there were, I think it took us a while, but we realised there was going to be a few things that we needed to change. Right, Martin?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, the title. Uh, obviously, Masters of Modern Soccer is not going to... Um, be a, a valid title for a UK audience, so we had to change that, um, which prompted one of our month-long conversations, <laughs> uh, where we finally alighted upon Football 2.0, uh, the idea being that the, the, the main theme of the book is about how football has changed in the last five to ten years, so the innovations and in all these different positions within a football club and these leading exponents talking you through how their positions have changed. So we felt that like Football 2.0 was the idea of an upgrade. You know, this is the new version of um, of this sport that, that, that you thought you knew.
0: All right, you can find out a little bit more about the book, Football 2.0, at backpagepress.co.uk. But for now, let's hear it from Grant.
1: Okay, Grant, welcome back to Between the Lines. This time we're going to talk about your latest book, which is coming out in the US on May the 1st. It's called Masters of Modern Soccer, the UK edition coming out on May the 15th. It's called Football 2.0, published by a certain publishing house called Backpage Press. Um, So we're we're really looking forward to to bringing that book into the world. I, I wonder if you could explain a bit about the premise of the book. I was very interested in the fact that this seemed to originate from a a concept for a baseball book that that stemmed back from 1990, is that right?
2: Yeah, that is right. Uh, There's a classic baseball book here in the United States called Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball. And it's by George Will, uh, who's a famous political writer in the United States who also happens to love the sport of baseball. And what he wanted to do was actually – not really talk about uh, players' lives off the field, but look really closely at the craft of the sport, uh, position by position. And so he took the sport of baseball and divided it into four functions, uh, a batter, a pitcher, a fielder, and a manager, and found one person to represent each who was very good at what they do but also very intelligent at explaining how they do what they do, the craft of their position. And he spent a lot of time with with all of those guys. And if you read the book, which was tremendously popular here in the United States, um, you learn about the totality of the sport from the people who know it best. And you could do that with any sport, and nobody has really here in the U.S., and Uh, So I decided I would do this with the sport of soccer, football, Um, and I don't have four people in my book. I have seven. Uh, I have five players uh, and two sort of administrators, and I picked one person to represent each, and I wanted to get a good cross-section of each or of the sport uh, at the highest level in Europe. So uh, the goalkeeper is Manuel Neuer from Germany. The defender is Vincent Kompany from Belgium and Man City. The defensive midfielder is Xabi Alonso, the recently retired World Cup and Champions League winner. The attacking midfielder is Christian Pulisic, already the best American player as a teenager. The forward is Javier Chicharito Hernandez from Mexico and West Ham United. The manager is Roberto Martinez of Belgium now with Everton and Wigan in the past. And the director of football is Michael Zork, who's been so successful in that position at Borussia Dortmund, uh, buying players low and selling them high and still managing to compete for trophies.
1: We talked a lot about access on, on the last podcast, Grant, and that was one of the things that really struck myself and Neil when we read the manuscript was um, the fantastic access that you enjoyed to these guys and, um, you know, you weren't writing about these guys from afar. You were spending a lot of time with them, sometimes multiple sessions in video analysis rooms, around um, coffee tables. Can you tell us a little bit about the access that you had to these personalities?
2: Well, it was just a, a tremendous opportunity to spend so much one-on-one time with everybody in this book over a two-year period. Um, I made a few visits to Europe, and each time I would go, I would meet up with uh, at least a couple of guys who I was talking to for the book. And uh, one thing i noticed over the years is the top figures in in European football, whether it's players, managers, or clubs, they, you know, they, a lot of them wanna be bigger in the United States. It's a growing soccer market. And uh, a lot of times that has meant that they're sometimes willing to provide a bit more access to an American journalist who is interested in um, you know, really in-depth stuff. Uh, and so I've, I've sort of leveraged that a little bit, but I've also really enjoyed building relationships over the years there with clubs and, uh, and players. And, uh, and so uh, this started in, in 2016 when I first went over to Europe for, uh, for these interviews and um, I watched video uh, at length with all the players. Uh, in most cases, the clubs put together, um, these long highlight video clips of the player doing different things on the field. And then as we were watching these videos, I would just ask questions as a curious person about what was going on in the players' minds as they're preparing for this is what's going on In their minds, as we watch what's happening on the screen, and thankfully everyone was very patient with me, but also tremendously intelligent and insightful at pointing out what their options were in that moment on the field. And um, for me, this was a wonderful experience because, you know, I didn't play at at an extremely high level. I certainly wasn't a professional. And here now are some of the smartest, most accomplished figures in this sport telling me what's going on in their heads and so I just kept asking questions kept listening and over two years learned so much and and just hope that that comes out I think it does on the page
1: I think the video analysis side of it was really interesting because because you're sitting down watching this video footage with the the personalities, um, it brings to life the the real life examples so for example, Vincent Company is not just talking about how he stops an unnamed attacker, you're watching footage of him Maybe taking the ball off Messi's toes and things like that. So you know, for for me, the the kind of the the real life examples that were happening in front w- was the key to to bringing that whole whole thing alive. So it must have been great to be sitting with somebody of the calibre of company, and he is watching himself in action and saying, well in this situation. This is how I cope with another great player.
2: Yeah, and, and there's a reason why Vincent Company will be very successful if he wants to be a manager or very successful if he wants to go into television analysis later on. He's already done some of that during the Euro, and he was injured in 2016. Um, just somebody who not only is very good at what they do, but so good and able to explain things about what they're doing on the field. You know, I've interviewed Lionel Messi in the past, and he's a genius. But he, like most players, I think, has a bit of a hard time sometimes putting into words what he's doing on the field. And and that's fine. I mean, that's that describes 95 to 98% of players in any sport, I think, including here in the U.S. And yet the players that I picked for this book are of this very small percentage who are really you know, not just thoughtful, but also can put into words and describe what they're doing, what they're thinking, what they're seeing out there. And for me, it was such a pleasure just to spend time with these guys uh, and learn the little tricks of the trade that they were willing to share with me, which which are included in the book.
1: Yeah. One of the, the chapters that, that really stuck out for me was the one in Manuel Neuer particularly the example you chose, and obviously this is a a World Cup related series that we're doing, so I think it's very relevant that the example you chose in in this chapter, as perhaps the greatest exposition of the sweeper-keeper role uh, occurred in World Cup 2014, Germany's victory over Algeria in the round of 16 and uh, to quote you from the book, you you say, to watch Neuer's highlights video from the game, which includes an astonishing five clearances and 20 touches outside his penalty box is to see a goalkeeper pushing the outer limits of the position Um, so it's fascinating for you to sit and go through that game with him but my question would be how did you happen upon that game because it's quite a a unusual example a a brilliant example but an unusual example how did that game come to your attention
2: well I'd seen the game uh, live when it happened uh, in Brazil in 2014 and you you were at the game uh, I was not actually. I was in Salvador, about to watch right. the U.S. be eliminated by Belgium, but but we were watching that game very closely on yep. the television in Brazil, and this was something that we had seen before from Neuer, this sweeper keeper role where uh, he covered covers much more ground than maybe previous goalkeepers have. Uh, but this was the shining example that any of us had ever seen. An extreme example that even Neuer allows that it was extreme, where uh, various conditions were in place that forced him to to come out more than he ever had, farther than he ever had, especially in a big game, uh, from his goal. And uh, that included having a very high back line uh, with Germany, uh, having two center backs in that game who were not particularly fast, having Algeria try to beat that high line by going over it with two very fast forwards and then Neuer being required to come out so many times in that game. And Algeria played a very good game, if you recall. Um, Yeah. And just to, you know, if you look on YouTube at the highlights of that game, it's, it's amazing. If you look up like Neuer Algeria, how many times in that game he came out, like not just a little bit, but, far beyond his penalty box. If you see the heat map of his touches in that game, it's it doesn't look like a goalkeeper. And uh, he didn't put a foot wrong in that game. And so I, I talked to him in, in depth about how he approached that game. It was also raining in Porto Alegre that night, and so uh, that added to the factors. Um, but it was, I think, a defining game for Neuer, who obviously had a very good World Cup and has played – you know, so well over a, a period of years now, but really established him, I think, at that moment as this goalkeeping innovator uh, of a kind that we see very infrequently in this sport over the decades.
1: Was Was Neuer aware of of how much he was pushing the boundaries in that game when you presented him with this example? Did he say, "Oh yes, of course," or w- was it w- was it kind of new to him that that you had picked up on on how uh, how much he had been out of his box in that game?
2: It was pretty clear that Neuer realized that game was something special in terms of what he was doing on the field and. Um if you recall that year there were three finalists for the Ballon d'Or and you know it was Messi Ronaldo and Manuel Neuer and it's very rare that we see a goalkeeper um reach those heights you know Lev Yashin I think is the only goalkeeper ever to win the Ballon d'Or and uh I thought it really said something that the world champion team that year Germany had one player in the final 3 and it, and it was Neuer the goalkeeper uh, and so I think there was a recognition that what he had done that year um, was something very special, and, and that Neuer himself realized he had set the bar very high and, and changed the way we view the position a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think it was interesting as well in that chapter that the Neuers. Um insistence on being able to adapt his role as well. He, d- he didn't just define himself as the keeper who comes out of the box. He um, changes his role um, to tailor the style to different managers. So, for example, uh, under Pep Guardiola, he's he's much more advanced. Under Ancelotti, he, he retreats slightly, um, perhaps for... Playing for the German national team. He's kind of somewhere in between. But it's really interesting that a guy at that level still has this ability to adapt uh, along with what his coach requires him to do.
2: Yeah, and that's something that Neuer uh, is able to do, even at the highest of levels. It's something that other figures in this book discuss being able to do, being able to adapt, to change, uh, to not sort of rest on your laurels and achievements if you've already won a World Cup or a Champions League, but to always be trying to get better, even into your 30s. And uh, Neuer's in his 30s now, and yes, he's been dealing with some injuries at times, but uh, he was very clear about wanting to continue to uh, to push the limits to learn more and and adapt to managers. And because these interviews took place over a two-year period, uh, I would interview these people at different times. Uh, sometimes the players were playing for different managers, and Neuer was very aware that he wasn't doing as much of the sweeper-keeper stuff under Ancelotti. And I actually ran the numbers of different data sets that are out there that showed that Neuer was right, that uh, that he wasn't uh, coming out as much, wasn't having as many touches outside the box under Ancelotti. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: I mean, it's interesting in terms of the, the sweeper-keeper role. A, a lot of it is based on excellent decision-making about when to come outside the box. And I think you exemplify this very well by the... Running through the footage of uh, a Bayern Munich Dortmund game, uh, which finishes five one to to Bayern, and um, again Neuer is at his brilliant best in terms of when to come and when when not to come. Um, Obviously, it's a very dominant Bayern performance, but um, I, I thought there was a really interesting point you made about the Dortmund goalkeeper, I think it was <laughs> Roman Burki, uh, who, yeah. who 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 careers outside of his box on a couple of occasions and, and at one point it concedes at least one goal from one of his mistakes and then you have a fantastic line at the end where you say, "You know, being Manuel Neuer is harder than it looks. Um, be- <laughs> because it is it is about decision-making, isn't it?
2: It is. And that's an especially difficult decision for a goalkeeper because no one wants to be embarrassed. And that's a decision, whether you come out of your box or not, that if you make the wrong decision, just by a split second, you will look awful. And it will be a tremendously embarrassing moment that will be shown on highlight shows around the world. And I think we sometimes take for granted the excellence of a player like Neuer and how often he makes the right decision. And that game was instructive, I think, because here's this tremendously important game in the Bundesliga, the top two teams in the league, and the other guys trying to do Manuel Neuer things and fails. And you realize firsthand just how how bad it could look if you screw up. Yeah. Just to
1: move on to talk about uh, another team that will be at the World Cup and perhaps will even contend um, is Mexico. And I thought the chapter, um, which is um, based around um, the personality of Chicharito Hernandez, but actually um, it's a really interesting and really unusual chapter because it's – the substance of it is is a a conversation that you have, a kind of three-way conversation between yourself, uh, Chicharito, and Osorio, the Mexico manager. C- can you explain a little bit about um, the, the kind of nature of the conversation you had? Because it's probably the most tactical chapter in the book, um, but the conversation really crackles between the three of you.
2: Yeah, this was one of the, the most enjoyable experiences I had, Uh, reporting this book was I had uh, had one interview with Chicharito when he was at Leverkusen in Germany, uh, but I had not had a second interview with him for the book. And he was actually the last person I I interviewed for the book uh, for that second time. And this was with the Mexican national team. And this was in uh, May of 2017 after the European season was over. And the Mexican national team was in Denver, Colorado, Um, before Confederations Cup, and they were training at Altitude um, uh, ahead of a World Cup qualifier against the United States down at Altitude in Mexico City. And uh, they're tremendously popular, the Mexican national team and all the players in the United States. There's uh, so many followers here of that team. And uh, I flew out at Osorio's invitation uh, to Denver and... It was amazing. Osorio and Chicharito actually sat down with me for much more than an hour, actually. And um, it was it was funny because we sat around a coffee table and Osorio carries around this bag full of um, tabs, uh, two different colors that, you know, little circles that he can put on a coffee table and map out tactics for you quite clearly. And this was It was just so fun to look at the specifics with Chicharito and Osorio. And you have Chicharito actually verbalizing most of the plan about a couple specific approaches that that team had in previous games to try and get him the ball in front of the goal. And I really get into detail with him about this. And Osorio, as Chicharito is telling the story, Uh, And getting into the details is mesmerized that his best player is so aware of what every other player on the field for Mexico is supposed to be doing, including himself. And they recreate uh, the setup of the—it's almost like a design to play. And we think of soccer, football as this sort of free-flowing, unplanned sport and yet there are almost these sort of designed patterns that Mexico and other teams have to try and find ways to get the ball in, in dangerous places. And they laid those out for me. Um, and, and it was just fascinating to, to hear how they go about doing what they do. And it's something that for a national team is probably even harder than for a club team because your national team players are together only so often. Uh, I think it happens more at club level, but um, you know, just to have that access, that time to sit down with these two guys—they they never do interviews together like this—and so uh, it was just a, a real pleasure to hear them describe it, and then I outline it in the chapter.
1: Yeah, there's there's a quote um, in the book. It's actually um, that you've written in it, and it says Asorio uh, says he uses every training session to model game situations with the patterns he has developed for the team, so that they become second nature to his players. And, and then there's an interesting uh, reflection on. I saw was interested in the human brain and how things can become lodged in the procedural memory, and, and that's essentially what he's trying to do by running these plays over and over again. But I think the practical example that you use was very powerful, and that, that was um, a chicharito goal against Costa Rica in qualifying. Um, and we've actually got a, a, a really nice diagram in the book which breaks that down. But um, but, but but that that was nice to put an example to it because it was it was a beautifully executed play and then Chichirito gets on the end of it and manages to get the ball past Navas
2: yeah uh, it was every aspect of the design of that play worked and it's something that they uh, had trained repeatedly in the days before this World Cup qualifier against Costa Rica and it involved Chicharito not starting as a center forward in a 4-3-3. He was actually out starting on the wing on the left. And that was a huge surprise to the Costa Rican team. Uh, And then at the center forward position, instead of Chicharito, there was Uribe Peralta, who's more of a target forward. And uh, Osorio and Chicharito go through in detail how they set up this pattern uh, in which Peralta retreats deep and takes his center back with him, and that opens up some space in front of the goal and Navas in the penalty box, and Chicharito waits for the play to develop. Carlos Vela ends up getting the ball on the right wing after a a short buildup involving Peralta, and Vela then finds Chicharito cutting into the box, into that open space, for the finish. And what Chicharito was saying was, he was amazed at how it basically happened almost exactly the way they had drawn it up and, and trained that week ahead of time, and um, they were really proud of it. And, you know, Chicharita likes to say that you think this game, you don't just go out and play it and run around. And it was a clear example of they thought they the play, they, they trained it, and then they executed, and they scored.
1: One of the themes of the chapter, I think, is the bond between Chichirito and Osorio, uh, and by extension the rest of the players as well, in that squad, and I, I think that that struck me as being really quite unique, that they all buy into this rotation system which Osorio uses, um, and... That that's quite unusual that, that players buy into it to that extent. Um there's, there's key games where Chichirito will be sitting on the bench and, and won't play. But but he's happy with that. He understands what Osorio is trying to achieve and and everyone buys into that vision. That that's that must be quite a unique thing in your experience to to see that bond between players and coach.
2: It is a unique thing and if you Listen to the Mexican media, they're very critical a lot of the time of Osorio in these rotations, where he'll make four, five, six changes in a game uh, in the starting lineup. And what was fascinating to me was that Chicharito very clearly wanted it to be publicly known that he is not critical of Osorio for these changes, even if it means that he's not going to be starting a game. And... If your star player says that publicly and says that internally in the team, then I think that has a big influence on other players following, and they also they all really seem to buy into what Osorio is doing with the Mexican national team. And uh, I don't think that was a show. I, I I think this is a situation where Mexico really feels like they can do something at this World Cup and go beyond where they've gone in the past, which typically ends in the round of 16. And to see Chicharito sort of defying the Mexican media and their criticisms of of Osorio, I think spoke very well of what Osorio has built in the couple of years that he's been in charge of that team.
1: I I think it's really interesting. Um, When when I first came away from the chapter, um, I thought, Wow, I'm going to be really interested to watch Mexico this summer, um, because when you have that level of talent and you have that level of unity, then you know interesting things can happen. As you say, lost in the round of 16, the past two World Cups, they obviously beat Costa Rica in, in qualification, who are a fantastic team um, uh, with a World Cup pedigree themselves. What, what do you think going into the, the summer's tournament? Do, do you feel that they can? They, I mean they, as Chicharito says, believes that they
2: can compete to win. Can they compete to win? You know, I think it's possible, and it seems like Mexico has, you know, looked good in previous World Cups, and then goes out against either Argentina or the Netherlands in the round of sixteen. Uh, and everyone in Mexico I talked to talks about. Uh, El quinto partido, the the fifth game. They they want to get to the fifth game of the World Cup, which they have not done since 1986. And so uh, I think that's uh, that's going to be the big challenge. They they drew into um, uh, you know a, a fairly difficult situation because they've got Germany in their group, and so. Uh, it my guess is it will be difficult to win that group, not impossible, but difficult. And if they finish second, they're looking likely at a, a round of 16 game against Brazil, um, a team that they actually played pretty w- against pretty well in 2014 at the World Cup. Uh, Mexico is never out of any game that they're in. They can compete against any team in the world, but we will find out, I think, very clearly. Uh, how good Osorio is with his team and what he has built um you know when Russia comes around. And the other teams in their group are not easy. You've got Germany, you've got Sweden, you've got South Korea. Um and you know it, that is a group in which any of the four teams can come out. But I look at what Mexico has done in the last couple of years at um in various competitions and i and i think they have a chance of of doing something special and clearly chicharito thinks he thinks they have the talent to win the world cup and i know some people might snicker at that but he certainly says it with a belief
1: just finally grant i want to uh, talk about the roberto martinez chapter obviously roberto is taking charge of belgium in the summer um There's a really interesting theme to the chapter, which is adaptation. It's about how Martinez has adapted throughout his career to all the different challenges and different teams he's been in charge of. Um, This great mantra, adapt or die, is really significant, I think. Um, In terms of the World Cup-related stuff, uh, to me, it seems that the story of that chapter is the difference between perhaps four years ago where you had someone like Mark Wilmot's um, who stuck very stubbornly to a certain system and then ultimately came unstuck, and perhaps somebody like Martinez who looks much more closely at the talents at his disposal and then works out how to harness it and what incredible talents he does have is at his disposal. Um, great names like company De Bruyne, Hazard, Lukaku. Um, what was the what was the elements of 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 that that, that stuck out to you? Is it his, It's almost like a tantalizing prospect that we have this coach who loves to adapt to his players and, and he has this wealth of talent at his disposal capable of winning the tournament. It's, it's so tantalizing.
2: It really is. Uh, and Martinez realizes what he has. He knew that when he took the job. He knew that the Belgian team is one of probably the three or four most talented teams overall in the World Cup and yet was viewed to have underachieved at Euro 2016. They got to the quarterfinals, lost to Wales, um, and even at the World Cup in 2014 when they still got to the quarterfinals. And so Martinez sees this as a chance to finally take a Belgian team and get more than the sum of its parts. And if he does that, he could win the World Cup. Mark Wilmot's clearly coached a team that was less than the sum of its parts and that's why he was let go and he should have been let go but if you look at martinez's career especially at wigan um you know to win the fa cup his success in knockout tournaments was pretty incredible and he really had a way of of getting more than the sum of his parts of adapting to his talent um and While there are many differences between being a club manager and a national team manager, which he gets into in detail simply because when I started uh, interviewing him, he was still a club manager with Everton, and then he became a national team coach with with Belgium. And so we go into some really extensive detail on the differences of the jobs. Um, But there are some similarities in the sense of how you approach – Working with your players, adapting to your players, and trying to get the most out of the team with an emphasis on team.
1: There's also a huge mental barrier that they have to break through as well. I think Martinez talks about Belgium comparing them to France before the World Cup '98, Spain before they won it in Euro 2008. They just need to get over uh, this mental barrier if they're, they're to achieve greatness, I guess.
2: Yeah, and and he made those comparisons directly and he's like, look, you know, once they won something, it was almost as if the floodgates opened and they became these super teams that won not just one major trophy, but multiple major trophies. And he really does think this Belgium team is capable of that. And um and as does Vincent Company when, when I spoke to him about uh about Belgium and here with company too is a guy who has won important trophies as a player, especially with Manchester City, Um, talking about what Belgium needs to do to have a culture inside its team that is about not just being very talented and having so much promise, but also getting the job done, uh, winning when you're not at your best, winning when it counts most.
1: Just final question, Grant. Um, how is your summer looking? Will you be out? Will you be out in Russia? And if so, what what teams will you be predominantly following?
2: Well, with the United States not qualifying for the World Cup, uh, I won't be following the U.S. team, and <laughs> I'll be working for for Sports Illustrated, but also with Fox Sports Television, which is the English language rights holder in the United States. So, uh, our studio is going to be in the middle of Red Square, and, and that's where I'll be basically for the entirety of the tournament. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the World Cup is, is my favorite sporting event in the world, and you know there are going to be some amazing storylines that we'll be talking about for for many, many years. So uh, it's, it's something that I, I can't wait for it to start. And uh, for me, it's been wonderful to actually get to know uh, pretty well some of these figures who will be competing in Russia uh, and look forward to to covering them over there and continuing to follow
1: Football 2.0: How the World's Best Play the Modern Game is out now in paperback and ebook, published by Backpage.